for your awards consideration, Max presents the Emmy Award-winning HBO original series, Succession. As power struggles ensue, the Roy family weighs up a future where their cultural and political weight is severely curtailed. Don't miss the series IndieWire calls the end-all, be-all of TV. Emmy eligible for Outstanding Drama Series and all other categories, Succession is streaming now on Max. Welcome to a special episode of The Wrap-Up, a look behind the scenes of what's happening in Hollywood and the world of media. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the editor-in-chief of The Wrap, and joining me is my co-host, Adam Chitwood, our co-executive editor. Hey, Adam. Hello. It's been a while. It's been a minute, but I'm so (laughs) excited to bring the podcast back for lots of good reasons. There's tons of news. This week, we're excited to bring you two fascinating interviews I'll be talking to Bridget Everett, the star and executive producer of Somebody Somewhere, a quietly devastating dramedy, those are my words, set in Kansas, which just wrapped its second season on HBO. And then we'll follow that up with a fascinating roundtable discussion in honor of Pride Month featuring LGBTQ stars of shows including Ted Lasso, Yellow Jackets, Schmigadoon, and others moderated by the rap's Elijah Gill. But first, let's talk about what's been happening in the news. And by news, I mean news that is not including the second indictment of Donald Trump. Yes, exactly. You know, we are now in the seventh week of the Writers Guild strike. Uh, DGA is in the midst of considering an offer or a deal from the studios. And we have a potential strike from SAG on the horizon. Uh, there's a lot going on. What What are you hearing? What's What's going on? I think people are getting really antsy. I mean, it's been. I think. I think. Look, I think there was a lot of exuberance and just basically adrenaline out there among the writers because there was this huge sense of solidarity and people really wanting to get out there. This pent up frustration and that that I think writers wanted to show, and I think a lot of other people wanted to, you know, show solidarity with. Uh, actors and directors and you know a lot of people are both writers and directors but i think now it's time to come back to this table like the whole town is shut down it feels like there is a a very strong show of solidarity amongst the guilds and although the director's guild has a deal that they're negotiating with, it looks like a lot of the DGA members are pushing back on that deal. Yeah, they are. I'm seeing that a lot. I'm seeing people on Twitter saying, I'm voting against it. And people are like, yeah, you do that. So this this hope that the DGA agreement would you know, sail through, and then that would open the door to both the Writers Guild and SAG then coming back and making a deal. I mean, I this the studios have to show some sign of interest in doing that. So far, they really haven't. Yeah. And, you know, from our own reporting here at The Wrap, uh, a big sticking point with the DGA deal is that the studios are willing to uh, offer the streaming residuals that the the members of the DGA are, are wanting. Mm-hmm. In return, they are asking them to agree that studios don't have to provide streaming data, viewership data. Right. This is going to be a major sticking point. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. It's literally a rock and a hard place. Totally. Yeah. Um, everybody agrees that it's absurd well, everybody but the streamers who have an interest in not uh, taking it as common sense. But people want to know when their show is successful or not successful. And so that seems to be a really fun, like a baseline point that we need to resolve. Because if streaming is going to be the new model for this industry, and as linear TV declines and cable declines, how are we going to actually have any transparency into how these companies are working, how they're running their businesses, much less how they're compensating their creative partners? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think we're we're at the point now where the peak TV bubble has burst. We're seeing a, right. con- a contraction uh, amongst those studios of that content as... But both for, like, just in general, the amount of money they're spending on shows is... Exactly. And as Wall Street has shifted away from, you know, it doesn't really matter how many subscribers you have. Are you profitable? Are you making money? It's also been interesting to see the studios are very much preparing for and it seems like they are expecting a SAG strike. Press for July and August films and TV shows has been moved up to June. They are packing junket on junket Mm -hmm. on junket into this month. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens after the after the end of June. Yeah. 
it's, it's not looking so great. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. Meantime, let's check in on what's going on with media, which is also not great. Uh, this past week, we've seen all kinds of cutbacks at news organizations. 73 jobs in the newsroom that were axed at the LA Times. Uh, 4% of the staff of The Athletic, which is owned by The New York Times, which was just bought by them for half a billion dollars about a year ago, They're, they've just announced 4% staff reductions. They turned the lights out totally this week at a small digital newsroom that covers tech in Los Angeles called Dot LA. And then uh, just a couple days ago, we heard about 21 news jobs that were eliminated at LAist, which is used to be KPCC. It's the largest NPR station in Southern California, a really big newsroom. You know, not a great week for media. What do you think, Adams? It's awful. And and I saw I just saw an Axios, which has been tallying up the number of cuts. The number of cuts in 2023 has has now surpassed the number of cuts that happened in 2020 due to the pandemic. The number already, of media already and we're only in June already already. Wow. Which is wild. Yeah, because the, the thing about it is, you know, I've lived through so many cuts. I'm sure you have too. The on the very day that the the rap launched back in 2009, Variety had massive cuts, um, and you know it's just been wave after wave after wave. I I myself wonder uh, at the L.A. Times, which added 150 newsroom jobs when the billionaire Patrick Shunchong bought it several years ago. They've eliminated about half of those positions now, and. One of the things I wonder is, you know, he, Patrick Shunchong spent a lot of time wooing this uh, wonderful editor to the paper, Kevin Merida, who's been bringing lots of energy, lots of diversity to the newsroom. You know, how much of that he's going to want to preside over? Because ultimately, that's not fun to preside over the, the diminishing of a newsroom. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is that diversity takes a hit with these cuts too, because it's usually the the, la- the latest people, the most recent hires are cut first. So that ha- will tend to be, if you're trying to add diversity, it's going to be more of the diversity, uh, more diverse staff that gets lost. And that certainly happened at LAist. Uh, we talked to a whole bunch of those uh, who were laid off yesterday. Lori Seitz and I wrote a story and um, you know, it's really sad. There's a, a great podcaster named Eric Galindo who got cut. He came from t- uh, L.A. Taco, which is a locally, you know, homegrown um, Latino uh, news site. So, you know, it's disheartening, but um, we're going to continue to cover it. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I am curious from your perspective, what are you hearing is, you know, the overall reasoning for this? Why is it so bad? Right I now? think advertising is down. Yeah. Advertising is down. Advertising is being hit across the board. And uh, we're I mean, we're definitely seeing it at the wrap for sure. It's not like we're not feeling the pain. We are. And um, uh, most of our advertising comes from the entertainment studios. And there's been pulling back there. I think just in general, there is a sense of caution and conservatism across the advertising industry. And so if you're a news organization that depends a lot on advertising for your revenue. And all of these guys do, uh, as opposed to say a subscription model, then uh, you're going to be feeling the pain. Well, also this week we saw Disney upend its uh, entire film slate. I don't think yeah. they'll be the last to do this, um, but really big moves and shakes. Uh, Avatar 3 pushed a year to 2025. I believe the very first release date announced for Avatar 3 was 2014. So it's, it's going to be a while. Wow. Um, yeah. And that created a domino effect. The fifth and final Avatar film is now set to release in 2031, uh, which I don't know if you can comprehend that far. <laughs> yeah, seriously. That's uh, almost a decade away. Oh yes. God. And Disney also delayed uh, the entire slate of Marvel films, save for Deadpool 3, which they actually moved up to May of next year. So so what's behind this? Like, why why are they doing this? It's it's a it's a number of different things. Number one, I believe it's it's and we have really great. Uh, a really great story with some great reporting uh, by Scott Mendelson and Jeremy Fuster, our film reporters. But uh, it really chalks up to number one with the Avatar 3 date is creating a domino effect. And the Avatar 3 is due to James Cameron getting more time because Avatar 2 made an insane amount of money for Disney. And now James Cameron gets what he wants. Avatar 3 is already largely in the can. He shot most of it. um, But this is all post-production work on that. Um, And then number two is writer's strike. They are, you know, 
productions of Deadpool and Bla- or of Blade and Thunderbolts, I believe, have both been delayed, which are two Marvel films. Uh, those were supposed to start shooting this summer. Now they will not. Uh, so Rider Strike is pushing some of this stuff. So Disney is kind of trying to Rider Strike proof its slate a little bit. And then the other thing is Bob Liger really solidifying his legacy. I mean, the other big thing here is that they plan to release two new Star Wars movies in 2026. Uh, this will be a big gap from the last Star Wars movie that was released, uh, Rise of Skywalker, which was met with a poor critical reception and really caused a something of a reset for Lucasfilm to decide what they wanted to do. I mean, in some ways, it like is it maybe better because we've been complaining that they've been driving way too much uh, content into that pipeline just to drive basically Disney Plus, right? So yeah. it's, it, we've been saying, look, you're 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 squeezing the franchise dry and you know we've talked about that with pixar as well that there's yeah. too many pixar movies kind of getting banged out it used to take you know six seven years to make a pixar film they were so uh careful about every single frame and every line and every character and now um you know perhaps i, w- I just wonder if that comes into it as well I hope so. As a fan of these films, I hope that they're taking more time. I I think there is all. I think we're also clearly seeing as as Iger steps in for his second reign here, he is uh, reorienting the focus on Disney Plus programming and how they're approaching Disney Plus. Um, so I think that's going to be reflected in the in the theatrical film slate as well. Big ramifications on the calendar all the way through 2031, and be interesting to see how the other studios respond. It's my pleasure to welcome to the wrap-up Bridget Everett, the star and executive producer on Somebody Somewhere, a drama comedy that's on HBO set in Kansas and just wrapped its second season and was also renewed for a third season. In the show, Bridget plays the central character of Sam, a woman surrounded by a group of misfit friends struggling to find her place in life. She's dealing with loss, family dysfunction, friend dysfunction, and then she reconnects with her gift of singing. It's a wonderful show, and I'm delighted to welcome you. Welcome, Bridget. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so thrilled to have you. Um, So, like, the show is so different than anything I can even think of that's on TV, but it's really about regular things, like human things, awkward, everyday situation things, death in the family, fights with uh, best friends. It's actually, like, a great comfort to spend time with people like that, you know? Um, you grew up in the place where this is shot in, is it Manhattan, Kansas? Yeah, Manhattan, right? Kansas, the Little Apple. <laughs> the Little Apple. And so did did you grow up with people like the people who are on the show? No, I, I think that my, my childhood was a lot different. It's like, you know, a lot of the people I grew up with that I'm still friends with are, you know, church, family, faith, football on Sundays, Saturdays, like that whole thing. Um you know, I had uh, two gay cousins <laughs> that I was madly in love with, but but it, it was it's largely sort of a straight heteronormative kind of vibe when I was in, back in the seventies and eighties for sure. So then, how do you get to this constellation of characters? Which I mean, I said misfit, and I feel like that's a little bit like kind of a knock, which I didn't mean it to be because everybody's yeah. kind of a misfit, you know. We all think we're misfits, like yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, you know, Murray, who plays Frederick Coco, um, you know, is, is a really dear friend of mine in New York. And and, and I I feel like the, the kind of ideas like what my life might look like had I not moved to New York. And I think these are the people I would have found oh, because yeah. they're mm-hmm. my family in New York. So um, what would that look like if we ended up in in uh, the Little Apple as opposed to the Big Apple? Um, but I think I, I feel like a misfit. I, and I've heard Murray say that about us before. So I don't think it's a it's a knock. It's a not it's not a knock. I think yeah, I think there's but there is something really comforting though about seeing those characters portrayed on on television. So like how did how did this come to be that um that this story come together around you in your hometown? Yeah, well I got a I got a you know deal with HBO and connected with Carolyn Strauss, who's a friend of mine and and she nice. said we check with uh what about uh paul and hannah who are creators um about working with them and they're midwestern and they pitched the world and it really resonated with me because a it was in the midwest it was the singing element a sister who had died you know murray hill was cast as frederick coco so these are 
all like major touchstones in my life. And it, I was actually relieved because it felt like these are things that I can kind of hook into since I'm not a, a trained actor. It's easier for me to go on gut, you know, and, and feelings and I'm familiar with all those things. And so it, it made a lot of sense. And when they were pitching the world, you know, my, my heart was in my throat the whole time. I felt a real connection to it. And originally it was called Emporia, Emporia, Kansas. But then when we were out looking in Emporia, I was like, let's just drive over to Manhattan and see what you guys think. And um, Well, also, but let's tell our listeners who might not know who Fred is as a character on the show, because yes, he's somebody uh, you know. But Yeah, um, so Murray Hill plays Frederick Coco, who uh, in the pilots is sort of the MC of this choir practice thing. But, you know, eventually he becomes one of her friends and found family and... Um, you know, he's an agronomist, works up at K-State. So he's very different than Murray Hill, the person, if you're familiar with him, who's like sort of a downtown New York legendary performer. But, um, but you know. Just and he's the, trans. And he's trans, right? Yeah, and he's trans, yeah. Right. And, um, so and that, the, that's part, part of the sort of unusual characters that you encounter, right? And and, yeah, and, and delightful, and it, right? Like he's like, yeah. he's like a light, right? He's just. He's a light. And so is Jeff yeah. Keller, plays Joel, who's Sam's best friend. And, and yeah. I think it's essential that she finds these people because she always felt like a little bit like an outsider. And these are people that make her feel like she fits. Um, and that's how I felt when I moved to New York. These are the kinds of people I found Murray being one of them. And, wow. and that was a real awakening for me, you know, meeting these kinds of people. And, and now I was just back in Kansas over a, you know, a couple weekends ago and, and now there's, you know, much more present queer community. And it's, you know, things have changed quite a bit from when I grew up there. And I don't know. How, just, how big, what's the population of Manhattan, Kansas? God, I don't know. When I was growing up there, it was probably like 38,000. So maybe now it's like 60, but that includes Kansas oh, it's, City. It's, 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 it's small. Small, yeah. It's like it's like two blocks in Manhattan or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a real Manhattan. It's one, one way to think about it. Right. So, Let's talk about your character, Sam, who's uh, she's kind of an introvert and she's searching for herself. Uh, it seems like she kind of feels as if she's missed some opportunities in her life. Yeah. And she finds a certain uh, way back through your incredible voice and this willingness to go back into this very vulnerable place of this gift. Yeah, I, I think ultimately she's kind of given up, you know, like she life kind of slid by and she never quite got her hooks in anything. And, and, and you know, when you meet Sam in the pilot, she's her sister's died and she's sad and sort of, you know, life on the couch and that kind of thing. And then she meets Joel and and then all these other people who kind of sort of slow walk her back into life because. Jeff, who plays Joel, or Joel, the character, is so kind of undeniable. Like, he's very charming and warm, and he adores her. And and kind of most importantly to Sam initially is that he knew her as a singer, like, when she was younger and believed in her. And and she's already, she that singing is so vital to who she is, and she's kind of packed it away. So it's it's not that he, like, adored her so much that you know you know sort of idolized her in high school it's more that he saw something in her that she had kind of put to rest and didn't always believe in herself so what i really love about this the show is that and what also felt very risky about doing it it's not super plot driven it's more about the connection of people and kind of the slice of lifiness about it and yeah it's actually really hard to describe as i sat down to try to like tell listeners about the show and i really don't even think i did a great job of it but it is really hard to describe yeah because it's about people in kansas you know who are trying to figure it out and i think it's about people like that's the kind of thing and you know carolyn strauss says it's kind of it's what happens in the cracks and i think that that's such oh, a great yeah. way of putting it. that's um, great because i i i you know it's not like super plot driven it's not any of that and anytime we try to push that it kind of feels pushed you know it's the things that feel most effective to me in the show are like sitting with the characters and kind of living with them and that even though the episodes are short there are like sort of longer moments in it and but those are my favorite parts me personally there's lots of long moments you're driving through the kansas plane yeah. <laughs> and there's um 
I, I love the scenes with your vote with the vocal teacher. Yeah, she's such a deeply empathetic character, and anyone who's ever been lucky enough to have a teacher when they were young who saw them, um, yeah. it just like connects for me with every, a, a, any experience that I've had or people I know who've had who had someone who like can leave aside all the other stuff and just see you just go straight to who you are. I'm so happy that you like that part and responded to that because I was like, this is, this feels a little niche. Like when we were doing it and I wanted Not to do at it. All. Oh I, no, no, no. I was all in, but I was like, you know, this is like, it felt so personal and kind of singular. And I, and I know that that's where I was wrong, but I also really wanted to do it because I think exactly what you're saying. It's like that the way that that person sees you and, and, and it feels like, you know, you kind of feel naked in a way, you know? Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and there's certain, and, and Barbara who plays Darlene is so, she has such a warmth about her, but also kind of this like teacher, this, you know, teacher thing where she's like, ah, you know, she, there's a point where she gets, yeah, she'll, she'll just like throws like every, every defense you're going to throw up. She's like, never mind about that. Let's just talk yeah. about what yeah. we're doing here. Talk really about be- that scene then, especially if you're, claiming not to be a trained actress i'm not sure i'm ex- accepting that because you're well former i i've i've i did a lot i've done it like cabaret and i've learned a lot on the streets you know what i mean like the, the streets <laughs> you know i've, I've learned kind of certain things but i'm not like i had to you know people had to t- tell me how to read a call sheet you know and all those kinds of things like oh I, wow i i well, I'm not, like, that's pretty basic okay <laughs> you know, but stuff like that but i, I I, I think, but that, hang on, but hang on. I want to talk about this this scene with with Dar- with Darlene, the character Darlene, who's your who's your vocal teacher, where she puts she places her hand on your chest, and you're she's trying to get you just to breathe, and it's a really it is one of those slow scenes, and it's a quiet scene, and she takes you all the way to this place of really deep emotion, just by breathing, uh, and you ultimately start crying and don't want to breathe with her anymore. Can, can you talk a little bit about shooting that and what it felt like and where yeah, you went? I know that feeling. You know what I mean? I know that like when, you know, the, the sort of thing for me that really struck me in the script is like, you know, she puts her hand on Sam's chest. And to me, that is like almost the most naked you'll see Sam in the entire series. It may not read that way, but that is how it felt to me. It was like, it's, it's letting somebody in that you don't, you, you know, it just, it just feels like it's almost like the, the, I'm looking for the word when you, when you take two things together, like two, somebody seeing you and then somebody seeing like the thing in you that feels the most precious to yourself, you know, like those kind of moments and then really taking the time with Sam to kind of get her to release and to let go and that takes a while right and so we just did the whole thing and it was really overwhelming honestly for me to to shoot it because it it just there was something about Barbara's way and the way she was it just felt I just felt really vulnerable and I felt open to her and I feel like that's how Sam felt you know and like and and I think as soon as Sam cracks open a little bit, it's like everything for Sam is like right under the surface. And if you can just sort of like zip it out a little bit, then she just, it's like she, she wants to open up and she wants to share her pain, but she's too scared, you know? And she's, no, I I feel emotional talking about it too, because I just think that there's something so beautiful and impactful about a teacher who sees you and, wants the best for you like somebody who wants you to to find it you know that they want you to just walk with you as long as it takes or slowly and then and also as you sort of leave the room and you see barbara sitting there or or darlene sitting there and she's and i felt for her so much like that i never saw it because i was always walking out of the thing and started collecting myself but like watching that afterwards i was like god the response like that teacher does that over and over and over throughout a day. Like they, they give of themselves. And I, you know, my mom was a music teacher, so I have a real soft spot for a, a I think it's such a, it's such a love. Well, you buried the lead there. Okay. (laughs) Generous, 
thing. I think, you know, music is so personal and like, and what voice teachers and music teachers give their students is really loving. I mean, it's really about love, I guess. I think what, what all, any good teacher gives is love. And that's that you're right. That shot of her sitting on the piano bench, she just folds her hands in her lap. The look on her face is one of like pure centeredness of, okay, we did that. And that's part of the journey is kind of how I read it. Cause what she's doing is necessary. And it's like, she knows it, but it's, it, you know, it's like just, we, I don't know. I just think about like the people that kind of, you know, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people, students go in and they like just sing their scales and they're, oh, and they're out the door. But there's other people that, that, you know, you need to handle with kid gloves. And Sam was one of those people. You have been a cabaret performer. You've done stand up comedy. You opened for Amy Schumer. I guess she's uh, somebody who's uh, been a, a supporter and a friend. Um, but, but Sam, the character of this is the total opposite. I mean, she's a total introvert, as you say, that she's like locked everything in and it's right below the surface. Is that hard to play somebody who's that quiet? Not really. It feels closer to the real me in a way, but I want to connect my as much of myself to her as I can. And so it's it just feels difficult in that way. It feels like pretty raw, but it also feels really rewarding in the end. And I, and I think that I'm, I'm learning so much by playing Sam. I know that sounds silly, but she goes inch by inch and, and but really is trying in spite of herself to grow. And that's something that I struggle with. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I didn't, I don't know if I answered your question, but I well, go back to, you just said you're, you're learning a lot by playing her. What do you mean by that? What are you learning? She's kind of willing to like, mess up and move forward you know when I was little my mom said um you know they do it once they'll do it a thousand times so like I sort of have lived by the thing of like just like don't take too many emotional swings just protect yourself protect yourself and I think Sam mm -hmm. does that but she's also willing because of the people that she surrounded herself with by by Joel and even her sister who she's is making these really big strides with I think she's just pushing forward as hard as it is for herself and I and I admire that in her. And I also admire that, like, I think you, you know, you watch TV sometimes and people are like, they're from episode to episode, they're, they're making big strides or they're growing or over the course of a season, but Sam has really only grown this much, you know, yeah, little by little by little. And I, I don't know. I, I admire her for pushing through it as, as, as scary as it is, because I think it's comfort, most comfortable for me to sit on the couch and just sort of, right myself but sam is like really really trying to move through her fears and i well, think well she says right that she's never fallen in love like she's never let herself go there that's a big one that's a big one yeah i think you know i can relate to that i think that it's that feels scary for her but she has a lot of work to do before something like that i think is going to be possible for her when you say you can relate to that, and maybe that's too personal to ask, but is th that a... Uh... I think I can relate to it. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. Um, I have to also call out, I think Jeff Hiller, who plays your your bestie, Joel, is fantastic. There's just so many uh, actually terrific performances and fully lived characters in the show. I think that's what really pull it, it by the way it ha it have to be because there isn't a lot of plot you have to really care about yeah the people of the show and 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 it's so hard to do actually to start from zero in this landscape of so much entertainment all the time to get viewers to want to spend time with people who they've never met and the, and nothing in particularly nothing particularly dramatic is happening so you just have to sit with it and hang with it but now, you know, you've done season two, you're going into season three. Um, you feel like you're on really solid ground, like you can take the characters more more places now? Or I do. I, I think that, like, it's challenging to think what those are because we've already hit on some big themes. But we did write season three in anticipation of the strike. And I'm sure, you know, we'll want to... So you it's know, done. It's it's written. It's written. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's things that we'll... Once we get back together and once, you know, we can go back into production, we'll we'll try to dig deeper because, you know, that's the thing that like Carolyn, who's really kind of our fairy godmother and 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 also and, and Amy and Pia at HBO, you know, they 
It's funny too, because I think of Carolyn as like this very New York person, you know, but she's honestly got like the, the, the tenderest side. Like she's like, you know, she'll send me like videos on Instagram sobbing, you know, like we both are like, really? Oh my God. That's so funny. (laughs) Just blubbering little babies, but also like fart jokes. So, you know, but like, I think she's always like, how can we go deeper? And then we'll just talk on the phone. And then I'll start crying and we'll be like, okay, I think we should explore that. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> or just, you know, with Paul and Nana too, our, you know, our, our creators, like we try to think about it, not like go deeper in the way of like, let's make them cry. It's more like to really get underneath the hood of what's going on for Sam. And, and it, sometimes that's a funny thing and sometimes it's a sad thing. And, but um, I like that. I like exploring yeah. Sam. Because I feel like I, again, like, I feel like I, I learned from her. Like, it's like, what's the note behind the note? You know, like, that's what we're always trying to get to with Sam. Like, what's, what is it? Like, what is it, Sam? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really know what you mean. And so I, I think we're, we're all going to hang in there with you. I Before we go, I, I do want to ask, it's so beautiful to hear you sing on the show. And in the last season, you sing um, Ave Maria <laughs> a cappella in the wind sitting outside um so beautiful is, is that your is that your favorite thing doing on the show is it uh the easiest thing yeah it's, it's just it's beautiful singing is like usually the most comfortable thing for me like when i'm doing my live yeah. shows well i'll just start singing and i'm gonna feel good but this is such a different medium and way of doing it it's harder in a way but i still enjoy it i still love it like i you know the ave maria thing i used to just when I was in high school and college, I took voice lessons. And so I could sing that way a lot better. And I've lost it, you know, so Fool me. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. But, um, but I think Sam makes it her own and it works. So, um, but I, I love all kinds of music. And to me, it's one of the most essential parts of the show. And it makes me so happy to get to have a character that's so closely wed to something that she loves, like, you know, that's singing and it's not about like, getting up and doing a showstopper or getting up and like breaking into a glee style number. It's just how music informs her life. And I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. It's definitely so much part of what we learn about her as character. Uh, so it's great. Well, thank you so much, Bridget Everett for joining us on the wrap up. It's been great to talk to his first time. I hope it's not the last time we get to, we get to talk. Uh, the show, the show is called somebody somewhere. It just wrapped its second season on HBO. Go check it out. Um, and we look forward to season three whenever whenever that's coming. We'll talk then. We'll talk then. Thanks. Thank you. In honor of Pride Month, we're excited to bring together a broad range of voices from the LGBTQ community in Hollywood as part of our roundtable series. Take it away, Elijah Gill. Let's meet our amazing panelists. Jody Balfour from Ted Lasso. How are you, Jody? I'm great. Thanks. Happy to be here. Joel Kim Booster, writer and actor from Fire Island. Hello. Titus Burgess, actor from Schmigadoon. How are y'all? Harvey Gian, actor, What We Do in the Shadows. Hello. Devering Jacobs, actor, writer, and director from Reservation Dogs. Hey, what's up? Nicole Maines, actor, Yellow Jackets. Hello, happy Pride. Nico Santos, actor, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. Hi, Nico. Hi, everyone. Have any of you ever experienced any type of homophobia on set or seen it? And how did you react? Joel, I'll start with you. Um, dang, <laughs> just get next to it. <laughs> I, I've been fairly lucky that like I've worked on pretty like progressive sets. I, I would say like a lot of the, the homophobia that I've experienced has probably felt a little bit more like benevolent homophobia, if that makes any sense, where people say, sort of ignorant things in the an attempt to make me feel more comfortable or just sort of like centering my queerness in a way that like makes me feel other and but like they're trying to be helpful like I had um a director like say to me one time I was doing um a, a scene where I had to like catch a ball and they were like oh if you're not comfortable like catching a ball we don't want to embarrass you and like it was clear that it was like anything and I was like thank you for you're you know looking out for me i guess but i i'm gay and i can catch a ball thank you very much i can catch a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had a guest role with our two broke girls and 
I was on a holding deal with CBS at the time. Uh, this was right after the, the showcase that they did. And there was one line in the script that, where I had to say that um, basically it was implying that my character was a pedophile because he was gay. Just one line. And I was like, do you really have to say that he's into underage boy? Can't that just be whatever? And so I like, you know, told that to somebody from CBS, not knowing that they were like, <laughs> they were like, hey, I hope you don't mind. I actually forwarded what you said to the head of the network at the time. And it really escalated all the way to the top. And be like, your concerns are being met. I'm just like, and I don't want any blacklisted from the industry. I still want to keep this job. Because when you, at, at, the, at that time, you know, like when you haven't really sort of like quote unquote made it, you know, like, you feel that every wrong step you make would be like, it's going to be your demise. And then I really did truly feel like I w- I'm never going to work again. They're going to think that I'm like that minority who's complaining about like, who couldn't take a joke, blah, 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 blah. And I was sweating bullets for, for so long. And they did eventually change the line to something less offensive, but it was still kind of offensive. And, you know, I just kind of had to like, take the job and be happy that I was being a paid working actor and, and just sort of bread and bear it. Oh, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Nicole, how about you? Similarly, um, I've been very, very fortunate on my sets um, to have been in progressive environments and, and to be felt like I was being taken care of on set. I think my experience with transphobia is more after the fact um with fans of the show on social media um and not always being looked after by the shows or by by the studios and then they're kind of like okay it's out we're promoting do this uh instagram takeover and like just kind of being thrown to the wolves and you're like oh wow i really didn't realize that your fans our fans are fucking crazy and they really don't love that i'm here um and that was but that was also more just my experience with social media in general um so that's not really um i think uh necessarily um congruent to homophobia or transphobia on set um because in that regard i've been very very fortunate the few times that i have experienced something would be something uh along the lines of using gay as a negative uh description or something and then i make it a point to be like because that's bad right is that why you're using it and then like no i didn't know and you know what i mean i was like no i don't know what you mean because when you say it someone's listening and it has uh it has an effect and so it would be like it was, it was more like a learning experience i think and these people are actors who have become friends of mine who doesn't justify the comments they made at the moment but they've learned from it but it's also not our responsibility to teach every time and I feel like we've been doing that a lot. Like we're teaching all the time. It's like, you should know that you have friends who are gay. Why are you using that slur? Why are you using that as a negative? Like, why do I have to remind you? It's like, no, I know. It's just like, a, it's, a, it's a high school thing when I was in school. That's so gay. And it's like, it's not okay. So uh, just like that, um, aside from that being the case, um, no, there's been moments where I've been told, you know, uh, would you, I had a, a, an episode uh, coming out for the character that I was playing, uh, Recently, and I was talking to the director about this afterwards, and he said, you know, he's a, he's a great guy, Kyle Nowicek. He was just like, yeah, man, I remember that day, you know, we're shooting, and you did the first take, and you got so emotional. And I remember going like, do it again, because do you think you'd be that emotional? And I was like, have you come out to anyone? <laughs> have you come out to anyone? He's all like, touche, touche. And this is a white, cis, hetero man. And it was like, touche, touche. And again, I love Kyle. He's fantastic. But he said it was a learning experience for him in that moment, because he would have never even thought, he was just thinking, maybe we should do it like where it's not so like painful for him. And I was like, yeah, I'm literally channeling my own coming out right now. <laughs> so and if that were to be like a queer person behind the lens, there would be no question about yeah. what that experience would be. Yeah. We should get paid for all the education we have to do on set. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, that writer credit. Because yeah. <laughs> you know we have to rewrite these lines. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and since then, you know, we we uh, this past year we won the Glad Award for that episode, which is really amazing and fantastic. And at the thank you at work show, he was sitting next to me, and he like was did the sweetest thing. He was like, "Hey man, I looked back at that shooting with you. Like, thanks man. Like, you really did like." And I was like, "Thank you. That's so nice. And it's so great that I was there to kind of have that moment with you, uh, uh, a moment of learning." 
But what if, like, you know, like Debbie said, like, what we, it wouldn't have been a question if someone was behind the lens or in the room saying, maybe we shouldn't question how someone should feel when they're coming out. Cause especially from a queer actor who has gone, gone through those emotions, maybe let them kind of do one take where they, <laughs> they feel comfortable in their own skin doing it the way they think the character would. And, and then maybe have, you know, some notes from upstairs. I don't know. I was going to say, like, oh, similarly, I've been on really progressive sets, but then, like, as the stories have been shared, I'm like, oh, no, there was this time. Oh, no, there was this. Oh, um, okay. And I think it's um, a lot of it hasn't been necessarily directed at me, but I think it's been a lot of similar, like, educational moments, unpaid labor, um, like playing a two spirit character and essentially having to define to everyone what two-spirit means and and then getting the next draft of the script and it being like literally a wikipedia search in the dialogue on what two-spirit was just like you know not having indigenous queer and two-spirit writers in the room um but that's been again it's been more so like me being made to feel like a diversity hire or like my own queerness kind of like being exploited where there's a character who wasn't necessarily queer before but then as soon as they learn that I am queer all of a sudden these storylines come through which is great and I'm always happy to play but I like there needs to be a conversation about that on if that's something I'm willing to lend from my own experience and identities um but I find the thing that I've been coming up most against in the in the industry in spaces is like making sure that people's pronouns are respected like i feel like i'm always my people are always rolling their eyes at me when i'm like trying to encourage people to put pronouns on the call sheet when i'm trying to remind people what actors or crew members pronouns are and and it just not necessarily being taken seriously is something that's been coming up a lot so yeah like i didn't think there was but as we've been talking in this conversation i'm like "Mm." i've also been sort of reeling as everyone's been sharing um but I really haven't. I feel really lucky um, and grateful that like it's the sets that I've been on in the in the three years I've been out for um, have been yeah as most people are saying fairly progressive. It's just this it's it's the less tangible stuff. It's the experiential stuff as everybody's pointing to of like feeling like um, the hetero couples on the show have sort of love scenes that look a certain way and my character who's in love with a woman when we have sex it's covered only to a certain degree or like we kiss drastically less times on camera than the hetero couples do or just tiny things like that which truly might not be a thing that they're intentionally doing but it's really hard to digest when you're the queer performer playing that part and really believe in the storyline and the importance of it all the time every job i've ever had but not because it's like so overt it's largely because most everything as we all know if you are taking in oxygen is rooted in systemic white supremacy (laughs) um so like and and it just and it's not been so much overt as it has been a result of having uh very little vocabulary um there's so few uh words to describe the hues and range of emotion that we go through when we encounter something that we don't understand um, and most of the, my encounters with um, homophobia, transphobia, um, racism has just been from someone who just didn't know what to do. And uh, Harvey, you were saying something about it not we shouldn't have to teach all the time. And, you know, that's during the resurgence of the awareness of the Black Lives Matter movement again, um, which has never gone anywhere, but... Um, uh, there was this rhetoric going around where we often would, would say, you know, we shouldn't have to teach you at this point, you know, we're not going to do that anymore, yada, yada. But like, if we don't, who's going to do it? And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Then how then will we move past these moments? It's kind of like, while while we should not be tasked with that, it is largely our responsibility because to operate under the assumption that people who are ignorant are desirous of knowing better, is that's just not it because they're not because they were they would it's it's our responsibility to teach speaking of the responsibility to teach was there ever a time that you had to educate writers when it comes to queer stories and also were there times where you read a script and it was 
either too cliche or almost borderline offensive when telling a queer story. Nicole, I'll start with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm a tiny guy. I mean, it is, Debra, what you were saying about like not having two spirit people in the room, not having two spirit people um, directing or writing or part of the production process, it, I have very much felt that with being the only trans person on set um is the burden really does often fall on me to correct people i'm the first person they're going to hey how does this script look hey what do we want to do hey um can you tell us what's transphobia um and just like and i'm oh in this like the thing is like i'm i'm happy you're asking the question i'm happy that I'm involved in the conversation. I just don't love being the only person involved because my experience as a cis passing um, white trans girl who's had accepting parents, had access to gender affirming care at a young age, I my experience with transness is not cookie cutter, copy paste. There's so many different ways to experience transness. There's so many different ways to experience queerness and it's so intersectional with every other aspect of our lives that my own singular experience being a trans person doesn't even begin to cover the full range of stories that want and need to tell so i'm happy that you're asking me but girl ask somebody else too like it should never be a situation where you have queer characters and not queer writers to at least go with those characters if you're going to have a trans character hire a trans writer too because it shouldn't just be on that actor's now job also to play educator and and be the token person and well if something goes wrong we asked nicole i completely agree because sometimes i mean like especially when i first started working i would be hesitant to share my experience because i was like like nicole said i'm like i'm not the only you know like please don't take my word as like definitive for like the gay experience or the Asian experience, the queer experience. So um, yeah, I definitely experienced some some hesitancy uh, of voicing my opinions on, on, on certain matters because I just, I didn't want to, to have that responsibility just land on me. But then, you know, if, if I don't say anything, then where are they getting their information? Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's such a, you know, a delicate dance sometimes because you have to put every set that you walk into i'm very hyper aware of like well who are are there any other queer people here are there any other asian people here like who else can i sort of like buddy up with that i know sort of like understand my experience and like has my back if i have to be like this is on the cold like can you believe this like who can we talk to about fixing this from yeah, I mean, I echo everything that everyone else has said already. It's frustrating, I think, because we so often go into these projects and aren't allowed to represent an individual. We're being asked to represent everybody. And that is like, it's it's just impossible to do and it's impossible to do well. And you're going to let people down when you attempt to do that. And I think like for me, like I'm so lucky that I have worked with creators now that have like sort of allowed me to be an individual and not ask me to represent the full breadth of experience of every queer person out there because it's just and I think like what we need to do is demand less that every queer representation on television and movies and media is perfect and just demand more so that we're seeing more across the spectrum and not not expect every representation to embody you know everyone's experience and just give us more options to look to search for ourselves. Yeah, you hope that the writer's room uh, is reflective of the stories and the characters that are being uh, are, are telling the story. Um, but so often it's like one person in a room of 10, you know, and the burden, well, not, I mean, yeah, it probably does feel like I've never been that person in the writer's room, but the, the A, the burden that falls on them per Nicole's experience and also B, just like, like that's the slice of the pie is sort of increasingly unforgivable, quite frankly. Um, so yeah, we just got to hope that it keeps evolving and keeps changing. Um, and I really love what Joel just said. That's the only way forward. It does feel frustrating sometimes, but I totally agree with Titus and what Nico was saying that it feels like it's a 
It's like kind of being a tightrope. You want to you want to educate. You want to be there to help us move forward. Obviously, like Titus was saying, but also it feels like why does it feel like it has to be my experience, like Nicole was saying? Because there's my experience is my experience, and I can share my experience. And in my in my show specifically, also being Mexican descent, um, there was no writers in the writers room that were Mexican. So whenever we have uh, a scene with my family, I would they were nice enough to let me uh, kind of input like, I don't know who would say that because some of the words are kind of Google translated, like every said. <laughs> and so I would read the script and I was like, no, we don't, we don't say this sentence like this. Can we say it like this? And they're like, yes, that's a good idea. So they were, so now whenever we have a scene with a family, I have to go upstairs to the writer's room and kind of write out with the writers, like maybe we should try this and help with that, which I'm okay with. And I love that I could be a part of that. But yeah, sometimes it does get a little bit like, should I be doing this or should I, you know, but yeah, it's, it's walking that rope of like, you know, I want to educate, but it does get like, uh, you know, I, but I, but you know, Titus is right. Like if we don't do it, who's going to do it. It's part of what comes with being the boss though, isn't it? It's part of what comes with being the captain of, of your own ship. And while you may not, while we may not often find ourselves in positions where we are getting paid properly to do the thing that we're ultimately tasked with doing, like it's going to be kind of unbalanced. I still think I, I hesitate to comment on how laborious or tedious it is to be singled out to ask to, to carry the burden for a whole legion of people. Cause I think about Harriet Tubman, this bitch went back over 600 times to the plantations to get people. I don't think she had time to be thinking about, I wish it wasn't me. Like, so I just think maybe it's us. We're the ones we're waiting for. So, you know, I, 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 I put our fatigue here, but when we're out there, I say balls to the wall, march your black ass or your Asian ass or your Latina ass up to that writer's room or change the line. Don't be scared to do it because they don't know any better. And if they have the audacity to write such idiocy, then you have the audacity to present them with better options. And how about for you, Devery, since you are a writer and director of your show, is it almost easier to navigate that? I did get my ass into the writer's room since I was that annoying actor with so many notes. Yes. But now we, because I'm a WGA member now, we are on strike, so I'm not going to speak too much to that since I'm very supportive of, of the strike. Um, but... I wasn't always the only queer person in the room. There were other queer indigenous folks, poets like Tommy Pico. At one point, there was the incredible filmmaker who is trans, Sydney Freeland. And I think that there's also Erica Tremblay. Like, I think that there's such a reason why our show feels inherently queer, despite never speaking about identities. And it's because there are so many indigenous queer creatives behind the lens. And and it feels like there is strength in numbers and and... It's one of the only spaces in this industry where we've been afforded to band together like that. And that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to The Wrap Up. Follow all our coverage on therap.com. Sign up for our morning first take newsletter and be sure to subscribe to The Wrap Pro. Discover why entertainment executives and professionals rely on Wrap Pro daily for exclusive coverage, analysis, deep reporting, and access to VIP events and screenings throughout the year. See you next time.